In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Jesus, Word of God, reveal more of yourself to us through your presence in the Bible. Led by the Holy Spirit, guide our time of reflection. May it increase our desire for you in the Scripture and in the Sacrament. Amen. Just as with last weekend, we open up our readings at Mass by hearing about Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey. In this section of Acts of the Apostles, the two are backtracking to cities they had previously evangelized and, as you'll remember, had been kicked out of. In Antioch and Pisidia, as we heard last week, they were violently expelled. In Iconium, a group of Jews and Gentiles attempted to stone them. And then in Lystra, some people actually did stone Paul and dragged him outside the city. So now, towards the end of chapter 14, we're told that Paul and Barnabas return to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch and Pisidia. Get a sense of just how crazy this is. It would be like being robbed in a back alley somewhere downtown and then going back to that same back alley a couple of months later. But Paul and Barnabas aren't totally crazy here because previously they had a more public role in these cities. I mean, they were preaching in the synagogues after all. But now, as they go back, They're arriving in a more private way, speaking directly to those who already believe in Jesus. As we hear, they strengthen the spirits of the disciples and exhort them to persevere in the faith. As they're doing this, we're told that they appointed elders for them in each church. The verb appointed in Greek more concretely means to stretch out the hands. It was used for raising hands in an election, like when everybody puts their heads down in elementary school and then raises hands to vote for class president. There's a debate, though, as to if this stretching out of the hands in the reading meant more like what we understand elsewhere as a laying on of hands for commissioning. But the context of the verb appointed seems to indicate that it might have even been by a simple show of hands. Our second reading, just as with last week, comes from the book of Revelation. And in this section, there are three major parallels between what John is describing in his vision and what the prophet Isaiah said in his writings. First, John says that he sees a new heaven and a new earth, in which the former heaven and the former earth have passed away. This is quite similar to the penultimate chapter of Isaiah, when the prophet speaks for the Lord God, saying, See, I am creating new heavens and a new earth. The former things shall not be remembered, nor come to mind. The second parallel between John's vision and the prophet Isaiah is that John hears a loud voice from the throne saying that he will wipe every tear from their eyes and there shall be no more death or mourning, wailing or pain. This concept, and one that was also part of our second reading last weekend, is taken from Isaiah's heavenly vision in chapter 25. Take a listen. The Lord God will wipe away the tears from all faces. Thirdly, at the very end of the passage, the one sitting on the throne says, Behold, I make all things new. This echoes a verse from Isaiah in chapter 43, when the author, once again speaking for the Lord God, says, See, I am doing something new. But with this third point about making all things new, take notice that God doesn't say, I am making all new things, but rather says, I am making all things new. What John is seeing here is not a complete annihilation of what exists in creation, but rather a renovation of that which God has already made. Or, in other words, Christians can easily think that heavenly existence will involve the total obliteration of everything on earth, like some James Bond villain. But that's not it at all. Rather, God is saying that he's going to restore and make new all things that already are. 
Furthermore, since we're talking about heaven here, John says that he sees the holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. This, too, can be a bit shocking, because so often we describe someone who has passed away as going up to heaven. Yet what John is saying here is that the heavenly city is coming down to earth. As biblical scholar Peter Williamson articulates so well, this text indicates that God's ultimate plan for the human race is not that we go to heaven, but that heaven, the dwelling of God, comes to a recreated earth. For being honest, there's not too much we can say about our gospel passage, mainly because it's rather short. It's taken from John's account of the Last Supper, but as is typical of John, his line of thought is all over the place and immensely difficult to follow. The word glory, for example, is repeated five times in the first two verses, and the tense shifts from past to future. Yet here, Jesus speaks of giving his followers a new commandment, love one another. What makes this commandment new? Well, we certainly can't say that Jesus shows great innovation in calling his followers to love each other. The invitation to love others is present throughout the Old Testament, and indeed was present in the teachings of philosophers well before the time of Jesus. So that Jesus is telling his disciples to love each other isn't a novel concept or one they wouldn't have already known. Rather, what makes this commandment new is that up until this point in John's gospel, the relationship of love between Jesus and his heavenly Father has been emphasized. But now Jesus is saying that that relationship is the reason why his followers should love one another too. As I have loved you, so you also should love one another. So that's it. That's your Sunday setup for this fifth Sunday of Easter in year C. May this knowledge of the story behind the scripture allow you to encounter Jesus Christ in a new way this weekend. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.